All right. We're going to start this new year the way we always start. Uh, before we jump into the passage, we're going to talk to our young ones here. Young ones, let me tell you what this passage is going to be about and then what the sermon is going to be about, okay? So here's how we'll start. Uh, anyone here not like to laugh? Kids. Anybody here like, ah, I'm not big into, I'm not big into, it. that's not true. Charlie, you love to laugh. Anyone here, or, or anyone here like, ah, I just don't like joy in my soul. We all like to laugh. We all like humor. Ah, some of the adults are raising their hands. No. Um, okay. So, because we all need humor and laughter, uh, I got some jokes for you, kids. Why did Adam and Eve do math every day? Because they were told to be fruitful and multiply. Yes! What did Adam, what did Adam say to Eve when handing her something to wear? Take it or leave it? Because, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, what did, y'all, I bet y'all can get this one. What did pirates call Noah's boat? The ark. <laughs> okay, how about this one? This is almost like a riddle. Where was Solomon's temple located? Where was Solomon's temple located? Where was it? Where was Solomon's temple? Old Testament. Solomon's temple was on the side of his head. Right there. How about this one? Let's go New Testament. Ready? Okay. Which... Mary had a little lamb. Aww. Considered the most religious type of cheese. Because it's holy. <laughs> there you go. Okay, last one. What kind of boats do Christians like? Close. We do like the ark, yes. And what other kind of boats do Christians like? Woo, fellowship. Anyone have another one? Worship. Discipleship. Yeah, okay. Y'all, y'all don't like my dad? I didn't write my own material, y'all. Okay, y'all, kids, dad jokes. Like, they call these things dad jokes. Like, they're absurd, right? And so is the person who's telling the jokes. Like, that's abs- you're being absurd. I'm absurd. Okay, it's good to laugh at stuff that is absurd, And sometimes we, you, kids, sometimes y'all are very absurd. And it's okay to laugh at yourself when you are absurd. Let's say, like, you make a mistake. It's okay to laugh at yourself. Like, let's let's say you fail at something. It's actually okay to laugh at yourself. Why? Because you're not perfect. Only God is perfect. You're not perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to fail. And with God, there is forgiveness. You know what else is absurd? You know what else you can laugh at? You can laugh at sad stuff, which sounds absurd. But you can. Like, you can be sad, and you can also laugh at sad stuff. You can even laugh at the saddest stuff like death. You can laugh at evil. And it's not because those things are funny. Death isn't funny like a joke. Sad, you know, sad stuff's not funny like a joke. Evil's not funny like a joke. So why can you laugh at those things? Because they're absurd too. And because in the end, when Jesus comes back, everything sad will become untrue. Because in the end, when Jesus comes back, kids, did you know 
There's no more crying. There's no more sadness. There's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more evil. There is only joy and laughter and goodness with Jesus forever. Why? How? Come on, kids. Why? How is that possible? How is it possible that everything sad one day is going is to come untrue? That everything one day is only going to be joy and laughter? How? How is that possible? Jesus, y'all, that's always, you know that's what I'm going to say. And that is, that's the right answer because Jesus, who had all the joy of heaven, he came down, is what we just talked about all Christmas, he came down and he took all of your sadness on himself. He took all of your sin on himself. He took all evil on himself on that cross and he did it to beat it. And he beat it. And he did it in order to give you everlasting life and joy. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is how we need to have and how we can have this awesome joy. And today is, it's this intro into the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be in Romans uh, this, whole, this whole spring, uh, and, uh, and we're going to start next Sunday. But this is what happens uh, to Paul. What we're about to read, someone just showed me in the middle of worship, look at the length of this passage. I know it's not a joke. Yes, uh, you're welcome, the Word of God. Like, here we go. Uh, but you're going to be, this thing flows. It flows really well. It's just one story. And this is, this, this is what happens to Paul right before he writes Romans. So this is important context. In the scripture this morning, uh, it's, it's a long passage, yes, but it's, it's probably the funniest passage in the Bible. And, and it's full of good humor and bad humor. And that's important to know as we jump into it. So please stand. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Make sure I've got what I need. Yes. Okay. And Paul entered the synagogue, and for three months, little context, he is in Ephesus here. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them. And found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. <clears throat> now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. <clears throat> About that time, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 
For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has... And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this story, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his, cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these, be seated. <clears throat> okay, Mark Twain great American author, once said that explaining humor is a lot like dissecting a frog. You learn a lot in the process, but in the end, you kill it. Y yeah, but not always. So <clears throat> if, you're th if you're sitting there thinking, hey, I don't get it. What's so funny about this passage? I'm going to explain it. Um, so here we go. Uh, let's set the scene. Paul is in, Paul's in Ephesus. It's a coastal city. Ephesus roots political and, and civic hub uh, where the Roman governor frequently came to Ephesus to execute justice, was always full of criminals because the temple of Artemis was a place where you could claim asylum if you were, uh, if you know, you'd committed a crime and if you could make it inside. So tons of criminals. Uh, and uh, Ephesus also hosted the Pan Ionian Games, like the Olympics. So the city was also full of diehard sport fanatics. You hear all that, like Ephesians would feel at home in Houston and vice versa kind of thing. And what you're supposed to sense here at the beginning with a very, very, very tragic background showing up to preach the gospel in Ephesus. Like really, who's he gonna reach in a city like this? And, and, and like he's flat, right at the beginning, he's flat out rejected by his own people. So he goes to anybody that will listen. He goes to the Gentiles. And he starts to preach in a lecture hall in the middle of a day, in the heat of it, in, in the halls of Tyrannus. And after being shut up in a lecture hall for two years in this city, it says the gospel begins to spread throughout Asia. And that's like, what a joke. In this city, because of this man. Here's a quick so, whoop, 
Here's a quick so what for all of us. Uh, I mean, we should expect the same in Houston, in a place like this, this year, next year. I mean, because uh, you think about it, think about our, how we got started. I mean, how about the ridiculousness of starting a church in a rock climbing wall room? Which is what we did. And that's just part of the joy and the ridiculousness of the gospel. It's the, like the where we go and the to whom we go really isn't a problem because of who, who it's all about. So, yes, we expect to keep gathering people across Houston with his gospel and laugh with sincere delight all the way. There's more to the absurdity here. Set the next scene. Ephesus had a great claim to fame. This this uh, formal religion of Artemis, which was housed at the Temple of Artemis, which was the biggest, largest building anywhere in the world at this time. And the religion of Artemis was all about magic. And, and, and this religion was all about taking all other religions and all other myths and just mashing them up together. Uh, and so it was this, yeah, we bring everybody together kind of thing. And one of the big, big money maker practices of magic in Ephesus, specifically, is what historians call Ephesian letters. There were these letters. You could buy these, these leather parchments that had set prayers and incantations on them. They had blessings. They had hexes that you, you could read them out loud in your home, or you could just hang it on the wall of your home. Uh, and, and you keep it in your pocket. Uh, and they worked like talismans, you know, warding off bad stuff. You had problems with business, you had problems in your marriage, you had problems with your health, you had problems with your kids. You need an Ephesian letter. And they weren't cheap, but life is hard, and you need some insurance and assurance. Uh, and God's response to all of that is to use handkerchiefs and aprons, which were made of leather back in the days before we had, you know, tissue and plastic they were made, so God used pieces of leather, these handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul, and they were taken to the sick, and the sick were cured. They were healed. And you hear that, and you think, no, wait a second. Wait, 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 God, bad, God, that's a bad idea, because these Ephesians who are so, so superstitious, they're already putting pieces of leather on their walls to ward off evil spirits, and now you're going to do other leather for miracles? Like, isn't that going to confuse everybody? It is true, not everyone got the joke. Uh, these con artists, the seven sons of Siva, they try to capitalize off this extraordinary stuff by doing exorcisms in Jesus' name. So the way these kinds of people did exorcisms in the ancient Near East was to have, you had to have a stronger name uh, than the name of the spirit that you were trying to cast out. So you're trying to do an exorcism, you've got to have a stronger name, and by that stronger name you cast out uh, th that devil by his name. So you had to have a stronger name to call on uh, to cast out the weaker spirit. And, and so they were always on the lookout for a good name. And when they hear this Paul going around preaching about this God-man, Jesus, and these crazy things are happening, Siva said to his boys, let's try this Jesus name. So the boys give it a go with this very dark but comical outcome. This demon they try to exercise in Jesus' name says, uh, yeah, I know Jesus, and, and I know Paul, uh, but you're not with them, and they're not with you. And now you're in big trouble. And the demon roughs them up and embarrasses them in front of everyone, sends them home naked, crying home you know, to daddy. 
And yeah, like that is, that's dark, but that's the joke of here's God condescending and appropriating, using leather against leather to expose magic for what it is, which is an absurd joke. And to expose the gospel for what it is, it's the power of Jesus, who is God himself. And this demon unwittingly acknowledges that Jesus really is who he says he is, and that Paul is who he says he is, and that Jesus really is who Paul says Jesus is. And many of the people really did hear this stuff, and they really did get it. And they end up burning all their magic books, scrolls, books that added up to, uh, I mean, that, that 150 pieces of silver. That's uh, yearly salaries. That totals yearly salaries for 170 people. And their response as they're doing this is not, Paul is so awesome and to be praised. And it shouldn't be any different today. For us, as in we, we should trust, as we're about to jump into Romans, we should trust Paul's word, even when it's hard, even when we don't like what he says, because Paul's word is God's word. And it's God's word about Jesus, and that gospel is the power of salvation. And, and it means we, we got to stop elevating man's word today above God's word, which is something like a bad joke, whether it's a friend or a loved one or some stranger or some celebrity. And then here's the final scene. Something, uh, something has now happened the gospel, and people are buying less and less of these idols and these magic tokens, and people are less and less frequenting the temple of Artemis. And this guy, Demetrius, gets all the other merchants and people together and says, well, it's because of this guy named Paul and because of, he says, the way. Like, he refuses to even mention the name of Jesus, he who must not be named. Paul, because Paul is telling everyone that idols are useless, and you make a god, it's not a real god. And that's going to cost the city its livelihood. And he gets, Demetrius gets this crowd so amped up, so pumped up and crazed, they begin shouting. And it builds, and soon the whole city is in a riot. And you're supposed to roll your eyes at this because, like, none of this is planned. It's just the overflow of hyped upness. It's the contagiousness of craziness. It's panic and fear spreading. And Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he's pointing out the absurdity of it all. He says, like, no one knew why they were all shouting. And the riot ends up in a theater because they want a quick sham trial. And, and the Jews that are there, they, they really want to distance, them, distance themselves from these Christians. So they throw out their guy, Alexander, onto the stage to say something here. And, and here's uh, third and his big missionary journey now. Uh, this is it. He's about to head to Jerusalem. He's about to be taken to jail. Uh, and here he is. You're expecting, as you're reading this, you're expecting Paul to come out and give this big dramatic speech. And instead, you get this town clerk. And it's the town clerk who points up the ridiculousness of it all. It, thinking he understands what's going on, and he doesn't understand what's going on, but he still points up the absurdity of it all. I mean, because he basically says, like, you guys are saying uh, that these guys are disrupting the social order of Ephesus. 
What? Like, look at yourselves. Y'all are the ones who are disrupting the social order. And the joke is, like, you guys say these idols are the basis of our social order, but, oh my goodness, let's not point this up and be too obvious. All this idolatry and, and these violent idolaters, y'all are the cause of the disruption of the social order. You're going to get us all in big trouble. Just go home. And there's this thing of idolatry. Idolatry is an absurd and cruel joke, and we are all the butt of that joke. Because if, if there's something other if there is something other than Jesus that is a greater source of happiness, security, identity, truth, that's idolatry. And we're all guilty of it. You've got to ask yourself, like, what would you quit first? Like Jesus or this thing that you're always preoccupied or maybe a couple of things that you are, like, if you've got to have, quote, that thing, if you'd quit Jesus before you'd quit that thing, that's idolatry of that thing. And you don't have to be into, you know, actual little idols or statues or talismans, Ouija boards, horoscopes, astrology, fortune tellers, Satanism, which is a growing religion, um, to be guilty of idolatry. It, it's the stuff of like your physical looks, your wardrobe, your toys, your form of entertainment, your hobbies, your sports teams, your, your phone, uh, sex, your career, your family, your spouse, your identity, it's all idolatry. And the joke of idolatry is these idols do have such tremendous power over us. They are so hard to quit. And those idols are powerless to give you what they promise to give you. And in the end, they just rob you of love, power, security, goodness, identity. Humor is a really, really important thing. Getting, getting, uh, uh, God's humor, bright humor, is a really big thing. Carl Truman, who's a church historian, wrote a book on Martin Luther, who uh, was a big believer in humor. And this is what he says, writing about Luther. Truman says, humor often plays on the absurd, and Luther knew that this fallen world was not as it was designed to be and was thus absurd and futile in a most significant and powerful way. Thus he knew that life is tragic, it is full of sound and fury. It is marked by pain and frustration. The strength of youth must eventually fade into the weakness of old age and finally end in the grave. We believe ourselves to be, spe this is classic Truman. We believe ourselves to be special, to be transcendent, to be unique and irreplaceable. And yet the one, the one great lesson that everyone must ultimately, ultimately learn in life is that they are none of those things. However much, we want to be however much we want them to be true and however much we do things to trick ourselves into believing our own propaganda, we are fallen, finite, and mortal. We are not God. And because God is and has acted, because in incarnation, word, and sacrament, he has revealed and given himself and has thus pointed to the true meaning of life, our own pretensions to greatness are shown to be nothing but the perilous grandstanding of the absurdly pompous and the pompously absurd. Yeah, okay. Uh, and that's not the end of the story. A student, uh, a very, very serious dear student once, once, I don't think God has a sense of humor. I don't see it in the Bible. The Bible's so serious. And I said, um, I said, yes, the Bible is super serious, but you're not reading it closely enough. Uh, God has a wonderful, perfect sense of humor. 
And, and, and this is how we'll get this. We're going to nerd out together at the beginning of the year. This is how we're kicking it off with J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. Uh, to the casual fan of uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, it's fantastical. Yes. But it's, it's pretty grim. It's a pretty dark story. And it deals with, it, like, the major themes are light and dark, good and evil, war and peace, it, life and so much death in these books. And there are, uh, there are these comedic elements, too, like Merry and Pippin and these two hobbits and their relationship to Gandalf, like the relationship between Gimli and Legolas, the dwarf and the elf who are supposed to hate each other. And yet, as fantastical as all those characters are, uh, there is one, there's one character that is just totally bizarro goofy, doesn't make any sense. And it's Tom Bombadil. Uh, Middle Earth is full of monstrous trolls, demons, undead men, undead demons, orcs, uh, the dark lord of evil, Sauron himself, and then there's Tom Bombadil. This guy, he, he, lives, in a, he lives in a forest, and he wears rain boots. Uh, and all he does, all he does is frolic and sing and dance. That's all he does all day. He's, he's this little silly man, and he has so much power. The one ring, the ring of Sauron, the ring of the Dark Lord, the ring that the good guys are trying to destroy uh, because it's the most powerful weapon that will destroy Middle-earth if it gets back into the hands of the enemy. The ring that Gandalf, the wizard, the ring that uh, Galadriel, the elf queen, the most powerful good guys in the story, they won't even touch the ring. They're so scared of it. Because that ring will corrupt you, it will drive you mad, it will drive you to evil. Okay, they won't touch it, Tom will touch it. Tom will play with it. He can put it on and wear it. And it, he treats it like a little toy thing, and it has no power over him whatsoever. That's how powerful he is. And this guy spends his day collecting flowers for his wife, singing, Hey, do, Mary Dole, ring a dong, dillo. Ring a dong, hop along, fa la la, the willow. Tom bomb, jolly tom, tom bomb, a dillo. And you get to this part of the book, and you're reading this stuff, and you think, like, wait, what am I, like, what am I reading? What is this? Because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't make it like, we, we're never told, you're never told who this guy is. Gandalf doesn't tell you. Tolkien, he, Tolkien refuses to say, it, he's a mystery. He says this of himself. This is what Tom Bombadil says of himself. Eldest, that's what I am. Tom remembers the first raindrop and the first acorn. He knew the dark under the stars when it was fearless, before the dark Lord came from outside. And he's not in the movies. You can't go like, oh, I forgot about this guy. Let me go watch those movies again. No, he's not in the movies because total nerd of all nerds, Peter Jackson, who directed all these films, he didn't know how to fit Tom into the movies because he doesn't fit, like he doesn't fit in those movies. He's so out of left field. He doesn't advance the story, says Peter Jackson. But that's Tolkien's point. That is Tolkien's point of inserting Tom Bombadil into the middle of this fantastical, serious story about serious stuff is a serious power that is playful and joyful and totally unafraid of the evil in the world. The joy of the gospel is that the eternally joyful Son of God becomes a man. And he becomes a man of sorrows, and he 
He endures the punishment on the cross that we deserve for the wrong that we have done. The end of our story, it should be a wonderful absurdity of the gospel is that the Son of God takes condemnation for us. You've got to look played out in a theater on stage. Yeah, everything is dark and sad now, but the message is, in the end, because of Jesus, who has overcome all evil, we're not in a tragedy. We're in a comedy. As in that ancient Greek thing of between tragedy and comedy, there's a happy ending. And the so what is, if God is running the world and you are not, and you know Jesus is Lord and you are not, takes all this pressure off of you. If you think you're Lord of the universe and you've got to control everything in your day, nothing can be funny because everything is on the line. Everything is serious. But when you realize that you're human and you're messed up, but Jesus loves you and He is for you and He's overcome it all and you know the ending, the pressure really is off of you to fix you and to fix everyone else around you. And you really can stop taking yourself so, so, so seriously. You can laugh at yourself. Your cynicism can turn into delight and your sorrow, you really can't have joy in the midst of it. That gospel will get you through today and tomorrow and it's going to get you through this year to the very end, come what may, with a smile and a grin on your face. As in like, I know, it's, I know it's a sad time. I know it's a hard life. Laughing and weeping, they do go together. Laughter is not meant to be a numbing mechanism and laughter is not a way uh, to ignore the brokenness of this world. But at the center of history is a cross and we are saved by the loss of Jesus, but his loss leads to resurrection and life. Life eternal that's full of joy. Even in the face of the darkest tragedy, death itself, you can weep and you can laugh. Not laugh with death like it's a friend. It's not. It's an enemy. Not laugh at death like it's funny. It's not. It's a curse. Not laugh in spite of death like look on the brighter side. In this life, there is no brighter side to death. The gospel of Jesus says, laugh in death's face because Jesus has beaten death and because he wins, we will too. Here it is. We're jumping into our series on the book of Romans next Sunday, and we tend to think that Romans is intimidating and it is scary because it is so much theology. This is why this right here is helpful context for Romans because Paul writes Romans right after this. And part of how we need to approach Romans is seeing Paul point up the absurdity of evil and the devil and death and sin and everything that sets itself up in opposition to Jesus. Isn't like, yes, the world thinks that Jesus is a joke. The world thinks that the gospel about a crucified Savior is a joke. And Paul is not ashamed to hold out that gospel to anybody who wants it. This is Romans in a verse. 116, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for your awesome uh, and perfect humor. And in a dark world, uh, we need to remember and be reminded of the, yeah, on the one hand, the absurdity of the gospel, but how good, how good it is, Father, that you have come for sinners and you have done it uh, through, through the death of your son. It sounds like failure. It's not. It's victory. And we thank you for the victory of the cross and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And we pray that in the midst of a very hard and very sad and very troubling world, that you would also give us joy and you would give us laughter as we run to our Lord and Savior in prayer and in your word and in fellowship together and in our worship, remembering that you've done it and you're coming back soon. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.